Alright everyone, let's call a timeout. This podcast is proudly sponsored by MIPS, the indemnity partner of four out of five healthcare students. It's free to become a student member. For more information regarding MIPS student membership, please visit qr.mips.com.au. I'm Aiden, and I'm really excited to bring you another episode of the Timeout podcast in 2021. Our next guest for season two is orthopedic and trauma surgeon, Dr. Annette Hollian. As well as being a surgeon in Melbourne, Dr. Hollian is a Royal Australian College of Surgeons counsellor, Royal Australian Air Force group captain, and the president-elect of the Australian Orthopedic Association. I'm really looking forward to exploring her journey today in surgery and life. Dr. Hollian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Aidan. Good to be here. So, Annette, you're a woman and a surgeon of many talents and interests. I've only mentioned a couple of them there. For our guests who don't know you, would you like to introduce yourself a bit further and tell us about what you do? Uh, Yes, I'm currently working at Monash Children's Hospital doing um, principally paediatric orthopaedics there. But I've had a checkered career. It's not been uh, like other people's own journeys in orthopaedic surgery. So I think it's valuable for people to know that you can uh, take different paths to get to the top of the mountain. I uh, started my training in 1986 and there uh, was another female in Australia started at the same time as me in Adelaide, but we were the first through the modern training program. And um, it's so it was a very male dominated field as I was in training and in practice. And that's um, that's influenced my journey until I became more authentic and living true to my own values and what I wanted to do. And that turned into doing work in um, low and middle income countries and then joining the military to provide what I thought would be humanitarian service and ended up being a lot of war service over the last 20 years. So I've managed to. And I've switched a little bit in doing children's orthopaedics, which was my first love. I swapped over to full-time trauma surgery for a while and um, then was doing some more general orthopaedics. And I've pretty much swapped back in my retirement phase of clinical work um, back to paediatric orthopaedics. One of my things would be don't be too fussed about what you choose at the start because it's also always possible to change. One of the great things about medicine, so many avenues to go down. Yeah, Um, that's a really interesting insight. And um, as you, as I alluded to, you've got a lot of interests. Um, what interests do you have outside of medicine amongst that busy schedule? Uh, I have family. <laughs> um, my family, I've got a, um, I've got three children. I've got a son and, yep. and I've got a, and his wife and grandchild are down in Tasmania. So unfortunately quite separated um, mm. since we've had COVID. Um, got two daughters in Melbourne as well, are both adults as well. One always encourage your children to learn to cook. I found that's, that's ah, a great life tip as well. <laughs> <laughs> they all like to cook, and um, that that works very well for me at this phase of my career. Um, I like cycling, but I don't give myself nearly enough time to do it. But I've had a couple of tours to the Western Front um, in um, wow. France and Belgium, cycling there with um, a colleague from the College of Surgeons. I used to like doing needle craft and I, I used to do it in all my spare time, which is probably why I've hardly done any needle craft in the last few <laughs> years. Yeah. But I've moved from more um, wholly clinical role now to doing more work around um, governance and risk mm. and um, board work with the College of Surgeons and with the Australian Orthopaedic Association. Mm. Yeah, well, I'm really interested in hearing a little bit more about that later. Um Is there anything, uh, Annette, that you're listening to or reading at the moment that you'd recommend for our listeners? (laughs) A lot of feminist literature. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Um, For the the women and the men listening, um, I've really enjoyed recently Cassandra Speaks um, by Elizabeth Lesser. Mm -hmm. um, It relates to the stories that really underpin our culture about this being a um, the stories that we've grown up on, you know, even from the Bible and Adam and Eve, it's all from a male lens, not yeah. um, from a female lens. So there's a lot of putting down of women <laughs> and not listening to women 
uh, that has, I'm sure, influenced everybody in our community. It's the way we raise our children for the most part. It's the way we interact in society. And it, it doesn't serve us well when we get to adulthood and working. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm sure you'll have some interesting insights, um, particularly I'm interested in exploring gender mm. in surgery and, um, and in orthopedics as well. So again, we'll touch on that a little bit later. Um, as a, a final kind of uh, introductory question, Annette, if there was one profession outside of surgery that you could try, what would it be and why? My other great love is landscape gardening. I love gardening, but I like design as well. So um, landscape gardening, but probably the one that's had more relevance that I've been able to do because I live in a little, I've got a little courtyard in South Melbourne, uh, would be around um, furniture making and furniture restoration. Interesting. Perhaps something to be said for, you know, the, the craft, using your hands, um, mm. some crossover yeah. of skills there, I think. A little meditation in the, yeah, <laughs> meditative yeah. action in the, yeah. the standing and polishing. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, look, I'm sure you would have made a good furniture maker, but I think there's plenty of people out there that are grateful you ended up picking surgery. Um, and, you know, we're really fascinated to hear about that journey and about you getting into surgery and the amazing things you've done within that field. So take us back to the start of that journey. Uh, tell us a little bit about your childhood and your early years. Uh, I grew up in Reservoir in Melbourne. Um, mm -hmm through primary school, uh, you know, my early years were in primary school. In high school, I was actually up in Queensland uh, till the end of year 10, came back for year 11, 12. The family had moved and then came back to Melbourne. Um, and from my school, which is Santa Maria in Northcote, um, they had, you know, there was a record of one other, uh, it was an all-girls school, one other girl had um, done medicine sometime in the past that anyone could remember. It was pretty exceptional in that time that women did um, anything apart from really secretarial work or be a teacher or a nurse. They were pretty much the um, things that women did if you're going on um, to work rather than marry and have children, which makes me sound very old now. But it was, it was, it was just a very different era. But I wanted to do medicine. I got in at Monash, which wasn't my first choice. I wanted to go to Melbourne, but actually Monash um, suited me very well. But it meant I had to move away from home and live in halls of residence. I guess the other important part about my childhood is that my mother had had polio as an infant. So somewhere around, about, she was born in 1927. So some outbreak of polio in Gippsland around that time, she was affected as an infant. So she had um, quite significant motor challenges, which for me was just part of life um, growing up. I didn't see that as being something different, um, but I understood very much the importance of mobility and the ability for people to get around and interact on, um, on an, with equity in society and how people with a disability are often just treated differently. Even as they call a motor challenge, they have different challenges to overcome. So she gave me a lot of really good um, tips on dealing with life that things weren't obstacles they were just hurdles you had to jump or find your way around and a lot about persistence and patience came from her it, it's interesting to hear the mm -hmm. um you know from a lot of our guests whether they have those kind of role models or mentors growing up something to strive for to say you know i want to be a doctor like her um and it sounds like they were few and far between in your childhood is that right yeah they were few and far between it's so actually to do medicine it was a um a book by Ivan Southall called um, Hill End. Uh, it's set in um, a rural area. I don't know it's Blue Mountains or somewhere, but it's a rural area and um, a group of children get isolated from the adults on a picnic weekend and have to survive on their own in, in a flood. And um, one of them's injured and another one just decides, he's, you know, he can't help, he doesn't know what to do and he decides he'll be a doctor to help this kid that's on the ground. And at that point, yeah, I still remember that uh, um, that's what I'm going to do. And um, it was really interesting because uh, well, I guess one of the other things, I'm a, a governor at the Shrine of Remembrance here, and there was an exhibition that opened, I think, um, last, well, it wasn't it, during COVID, so probably the year before, probably 2019, and it was on Ivan Southall. He was actually a, um, a pilot in the Air Force in World War II and then went on post-World War II to write children's books. So thought well he brought me to this place now I'm a governor at the shrine and we're opening a, um, a 
memorial section uh, around his work. So it was really, mm, it's really nice. a moment of me of closing full, circles. Full circle, yeah, yeah exactly. Oh. So um, in terms of your interests as a, as a child and um, adolescent, was it always medicine for you? Uh, for a career, yes. Yeah, yep. from that decision around about grade four, it was always going wow. to be medicine. When, you, when you're filling in the things in year 12 about what you want to do, I put in things like, you know, forestry and marine architecture and a few other things. But luckily, I got up near the top of what I wanted to do. Yeah, so um, you mentioned, um, you know, obviously going to, to Monash Uni, um, living in residence there. Mm-hmm. What was that experience like for you and moving away from home and starting um, the, the medicine degree that you'd wanted to do for so long? Um, it was um, very, it was really rewarding. Um, it was a bit of a challenge to be away from home, um, but in some ways also safe. So my home suffered from domestic violence. So when you're actually away at university, it was actually a safer space to be in. So you have to think about that, about people who are away sometimes, you know, it's coming up now with people returning to work. Actually, some people need to be able to be out of the home um, and in a different space, at least for part of the day to to help get through what they're going through. But um, my father had already separated from my mother at that time. So it was for me, it was more about now mum was just there with the younger children without additional support actually and then she became very supportive for me because I had a little my first child was actually born in third year medicine wow as we had a we had some exams I think at the end of second year but most our big exams were the end of third year and we transitioned then from pre-clinical to clinical work yeah and um he was born six weeks before those final exams oh it it was a tense period (laughs) and my mum provided a lot of support and uh she looked after him at times I did um you know, pumping breast milk and saving um, milk, and then she would come over and pick it up and take it back to reservoir. Challenging wow. times. I'm getting a sense, Annette, that you really had that kind of interest and passion for uh, equity and justice from quite a young age, um, you know, with, um, you know, your, your home situation with your mother and her challenges from polio. Is that a fair assessment? Yes. Yeah, that, that's correct. And uh, at, certainly at university, there weren't, um, there, most of the students with me were really from pretty well-off, appeared to me pretty well-off southeastern suburbs areas mm. or um, rural students who'd been here in Melbourne at um, boarding schools and things. There was a, a few from Nil who went to Nil High School. I have to say it must have been really good at Nil High School because they, they did very well. Um mm. But I felt socially that I was in a different group, uh, even at university then. Right. And it was it was important that from we were in a golden era where we could get our university education for free, thanks to Gottfried. Um, mm. But it, it, you know, without that, I would never have got into medicine without that support from government. Do, do you think that's something that's changed at all? And um, perhaps ha- have we become better at, reflecting the general population in our population of of graduating doctors um i don't know i'm a little bit more separated from you'd have a better idea of your your uh um your class it's not reflected in in people getting into surgery but i'm hoping it's more reflected in the um students coming through that they great have greater reflection of the community Mm. but it's still this feet you know it's fee paying and I just really appreciate that um, I would not have been able to do it without support that I had. So throughout that time um, whilst going through med school what were kind of some of the biggest lessons that um, that you learned and you know if you had your time again was there anything that you would have done differently or earlier? Med school? Um, No I wouldn't have planned to have a child but then I didn't plan to have a child that that added a, a depth of complexity across my six, my three clinical years because some of ours was living in I don't know if that still is like um our obstetric terms and our I think our pediatric terms you were living in at the hospital um right. it, so it was that was a bit challenging with trying to have a child as well as living in um 
and it was a different era. When when we finished, it was um a lot of most of the intern and PGY two three level jobs were all um one in two or one in three. You were there all day, all night, and all the next day, and then you went home to sleep, came back and did the you know sort of three sessions again. That that was wow. it for um and so between um, my partner at the time we had one in six nights home together and one in six nights we were both at work together. Um, so it, that was not a good time to, to be trying to look after a child. Mm. And I mean, it's, uh, I dare say, quite uncommon um, to, to, you know, have the extra challenge of, of having a young baby whilst going through med school. But more generally speaking, do you have advice for those going through med school now and how to approach their learning? Not specifically, I'd, I'd say enjoy the journey because that's what it is. And if you take uh, side routes and take extra time and years to complete, don't be too fussed about that. You really need to enjoy your time on the way along. Yes, it's a hurdle, but you know most of you will get through it. Make sure you've got a life as well as um as well as your studies. Yeah, that's really good advice. Um, in terms of talking about your interest in, in orthopedics, um, obviously your um, mother and and the motor challenges you mentioned that she had um, would have played some of a role in that. Um, was it a similar thing to you know you always wanted to do medicine? Once you're in medicine, did you always want to do orthopedics? When I was an intern, we all have to do a rotation in the emergency department. I kept picking out the people with orthopedic injuries. Um, I really liked the immediacy of, you know, bent arm, straighten it, cast on, off you go. You're on, you know, already started your healing rather than um, anything else. That was the part that I really enjoyed and found myself um, picking people out and wanting to take on extra ED rotations. You'll work out as a med as a med student or a young doctor if you like doing procedures or you don't like doing procedures. You know that that sets you on two different pathways. Yeah. Okay. So that's an interesting. Um, yeah. First first question for I guess all of the med students out there who have no idea what they want to do. Hmm. Um, that's probably a good place to start yeah. and and go from there. By the sounds of it. Yeah. And if you like procedures, you're still allowed to think. <laughs> that doesn't mean <laughs> just put aside the thinking. <laughs> True. Good point. Um, and tell us about the then, um, you know, towards the later end of med school and thinking towards the early years of your work, how you went about pursuing that goal of um, thinking towards surgery and then orthopedics. Well, it was surgery for me. Well, it came up in my final year. I did very well at the, um, at the we had a surgical prize um, at the Alfred Um I can't remember I won the prize or was, you know, the runner up, but um, I, I had an interest in it then. And then it was the procedural work in my internship um, that I must have made the decision then because we needed to do at the time a um, basic surgery exam to be able to advance, to go on to advanced um, training. Do need to do one now as well, but we went through a phase of not doing that. And so I had my PGY two year I had off to be an anatomy demonstrator at Monash Um, and my son was then in kindergarten so that was about trying to look after him and study Um, I couldn't have done that with the sort of rosters that we had so a PGY two off and then I wanted to um, I went back to the Alfred as a it was PGY three but back to a, a second year job um, in surgery and progressed through having got my exam on that first sitting, thank goodness. But many years later, I heard from um, one of the very senior surgeons there that he went, wasn't there some problem about you coming back? I went, I've you know, no idea. I applied for a job and I got one. He said, yes, yes. Yeah, they didn't want you to come back because um, you'd had a child and they they thought you wouldn't make it in surgery. You know, you needed to commit all your time to surgery and it was not a, um, a suitable place um, to have women. He said, I had three daughters and I thought that was a terrible indictment on, um, on us, you know, on, on his daughters being able to do what they wanted to do. And um, so he, he really pitched in for me apparently, but I had no idea that was going on in the background. Sometimes there's people doing things for you that you just don't appreciate. Um, and I dare say um, those, you know, challenges are well and truly still present. Um, and I do want to touch on um, mm-hmm. later a, a bit of those kind of gender issues in surgery mm-hmm. in particular. Um, whilst you, you, you were at med school, um, were there any particular 
um, kind of uh, um, interesting patients or rotations or electives or anything like that that um, that stand out to you at all? Well, I enjoyed um, pediatrics because it was very different from the adult practice. You know, it mm-hmm. was I actually found it very rewarding um, looking after the children. It's quite just quite a different field. They have a whole different range of things that go wrong with them compared to, you know, well, particularly in orthopedics, but that was more general at the time. I enjoyed the children as patients and the way that they responded to illness and got better so quickly afterwards. You never in doubt with a child whether they were getting well or not. You can, that's very easy to pick out. I enjoyed that. Um, I had, um, I did an elective that was in um, Guy's Hospital in London and not so much the journeying over there, but seeing a different um, way of being. Um, I think I'm really fond of travel. I think it really broadens your mind, just even getting to different mm. hospitals. People, if, mm. if you go to one hospital and just stay there, you never see alternative ways of doing things and you don't question as much because that's the way it's always done in this place. Um, but if you go to other places and you suddenly see things being done differently, I think it really opens up your mind to alternative ways of going about doing your business and what what did you do at guys what was that rotation oh it was um well actually there was like the it was our winter and so it was their summer most of them were on leave so in fact we did lots of the ward work and working with the junior doctors there taking bloods um doing admissions and people so it was a little bit like a um intern level type job and substituted for all the med students who weren't there so we actually got a really good run yeah fantastic um so then as we've discussed Annette you moved on to to your junior years and you had that year um I'm not going to say a year off because it doesn't sound like it was at all um but you had the year uh, um you know doing demonstrating and and with your son in yeah. kindergarten Tell us then about coming back and, uh, you know, applying to and getting on the orthopaedic training program. What was that like? Um, Well, first of all, my coming back, I applied to do an orthopaedic rotation um, in that first year. And they, um, I was made a resident in the cardiothoracic post-operative ward. So there's like um, five patients who were post-op in there. And you had another, as the resident, you had another room, which was just, one of those clinical rooms so you're trying to sleep in amongst all these machines that are going ping and zing overnight <laughs> fortuitously fantastic nurses who would tell us what to do but the um someone just before me at the end of rotation the year before had had to open a chest in the emerg- in the um in the ward there <laughs> i was just living in wow. fear i've got a little bit out of contact <laughs> with what i'd been um with my year of, of non-clinical year yeah, trying to come back and you know get your head back into the space of all the clinical medicine and particularly high-end post-op patients. Mm. And there's probably a good lesson in there, um, you know, for all our listeners who are senior med students or um, interns, that the nurses are an unbelievably valuable resource mm. on the ward sometimes. Absolutely. Um, so the orthopedic training program then was that, did you find that um, challenging to well to to get on and then obviously the the program itself well I got on on my first application and Mm -hmm. um but I didn't know that women didn't do orthopedics at that point (laughs) someone Um, forgot to tell you yeah (laughs) I did not know that I hadn't realized that there weren't any women around I guess there were so few in surgery it didn't particularly show up to me that they weren't there in orthopedics uh so you had to apply and then I went for at the time you went for an interview and um it was at the College of Surgeons in what is now the, you know, it's the council room and now um, it feels like my second home. But at the time, there was about 30 people sitting in there. There was actually a woman there, but I thought there was, you know, 30 men. And it was like the Inquisition. Um, they were all firing questions at me. And it was um, it was things about whether I was strong enough and how I'd managed my family life and um, what would I do if I, you know, had another child and... It, it was um, very discriminatory. Mm. <laughs> and so I did get on though. And um, the Kevin King, who was in charge at the Royal Melbourne, took me in as the first year trainee then. There was no one accredited jobs at that time. We just went straight into our advanced training. Um, and he he really fostered me and helped me grow as a person in, in orthopaedics. I found him a really great um, first um, boss to have. It's really, really important. 
I think having yeah. people like that who who really he I, he wanted me there and he wanted to foster me and he wanted me to enjoy orthopedics. So that had a huge impact for the rest of my career. Mm. I'm um, equal parts shocked and fascinated um, by that kind of inquisition that you described. Did you did you find it abnormal or discriminatory at the time? I did find it discriminatory at the time, um, but it was pretty much the norm. You know, you, we wouldn't have expected men to be asked if they were strong enough or if they mm. would cope or what would you do with your child if you're on call at night. Um, or the one from Launceston, if you come to Launceston, you'll be on call every day, every night, 365 days of the year. How will that affect your family life? You know, and just trying to think on your feet and put a positive spin on that. While mm. I'm thinking, I am never going to apply to go to Launceston. <laughs> <laughs> that does not Bad sound like them. fun. That does not no. sound like fun. Um, and, I, and I didn't. I got to go to Hobart instead, but we always had to do um, a rural or a interstate rotation in mm -hmm. orthopedics. <laughs> oh wait, I'm, on a tangent. I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of thinking of the context that oh. that was in is obviously I hope oh. a very different context now in that I think we're much more aware and cognizant of how important um, you know gender balance and gender equality and equality of, of all manner of things um, in, in surgery is. Do you think yeah. that's um, yeah, do you think that's a fair assessment of the journey that we've made since that time? Yes, yes. And I, but I think it was very slow for a long time. I, mm. When I um, joined College Council uh, early 2016, it was really around those issues were still um, prevalent. People, even still, people don't see their bias and their privilege. Um, yeah. And helping people recognize that and understand it. Um, and that not everybody in medicine or even doing the same rotation has the same experience of that rotation as they do. So, yeah be very open to that so um i really did this um kind of seems like a good time to chat a little bit more about that kind of gender um the role of um kind of gender in surgery and how that's being addressed and hopefully improved um we recently or we, we've chatted to um, a few guests this year and chatted about things like obviously equality of gender, but then also things like quotas as well. Do you have an opinion on whether quotas are, are good or necessary in something like surgery? Um, well, I'm, I'm not in favour of quotas at this time because it's very unacceptable to most of our colleagues. Mm. Um, I, if, if we brought in even uh, one year where we made a quota, then... Uh, we'd go a long way towards bringing some uh, equity in surgery. But there's a very strong push. People talk about it has to be on merit. You know, you have to be selected. And then the women yeah. want to be selected on merit and the minority groups want to be selected on merit. Um, but I think what most of them don't understand is that merit is set by our um, white male colleagues with, with, mm. with respect. The people yeah. who are in power set that merit. And until we shift that, um mm. and redefine what merit is and what we really need a surgeon to be um then we're going to struggle to get our numbers and mm. orthopedics is the least representation of women some of the other specialties are doing much better i think um ent uh has done very well in pediatrics both are uh, around 50 percent female so that that's where we'd all be aiming well i think we need to aim for 40 percent in anything we do 40 percent um female 40 percent male and 20 percent you know the flux zone but orthopedics is only five percent um you know wow we, why do you think that is um, well, it's a great mystery, Aidan, <laughs> why that is. There are a lot of people are very discouraging to women who, are, who express an interest in doing orthopedics. Sometimes, and perhaps even more often than not, that's from outside of orthopedics right, um, right. about, you know, what that life might be like. And I think the people who are not in orthopedics misrepresent uh, the profession a little about what it is actually like. And I guess the predominant view is men who are working six and a half days a week plus and on call and busy private practices and not really seeing their family. And I've just taken a completely different path. So I see that it can be done in a different way just because there is one common thread, one common model doesn't mean anybody else needs to follow that model. You can do it in your own way.
whether it's a male who wants to be an orthopedic surgeon three days a week and a farmer four days a week. It's, um, you know, there are other ways of doing things. You can be, you can have two things that really take your interest. You don't have to be a full-time surgeon. Mm, that's really refreshing to hear. I think, especially for, you know, the, the med students and junior doctors mm -hmm. of the world looking up at and seeing, you know, that, that kind of pathway ahead of them and um, almost like the, the box ticking exercise in order to get from A to B. Um, so it's really good to hear that. Um, yeah, you can, you know, there's plenty of paths to get there, as you say. Yeah, the path's a little bit different. That's through your advanced training is the challenge. That's, mm. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's the one where you don't have nearly as much flexibility. Once you finish, total flexibility. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, as I said, good to hear. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm interested um, kind of on a related issue now. Um, there's been particularly in the last five or 10 years, a lot of coverage in the surgical field about um, things like bullying and harassment and discrimination on the basis of things like gender and race. Um, do you think that, um, again, things like more accurate or, or increased representation of minorities um, is one way to address this issue? And, and what are the other ways that we can address that? Yes, I think um, having a voice at the table and being yep. valued for the difference that people bring is really important. So some of the thing around quotas is, is very much it's um, you get included, but nobody cares much for what you've got to say. It's just, it is just a tick box to say, yes, we've got some women or yes, mm. we've got some people who weren't born in uh, Australia um, on the group, whatever it is. Yes, we've um, got someone with different religions on there. But until those voices are actually valued um, and people really want to know what those different opinions are, we'll still struggle. The, um, we really need to use all the lenses we have to look at our problems um, to try and work out what to do differently. And the, you know, there was, as an example, um, people see some bad behaviour. There's been a very long history in surgery of letting that pass, you know, sort of walking past the standard you walk past, the standard you accept. And so, you know, um, that surgeon's always like that, you know, that's how they behave, you know, they're an important surgeon, you know. <laughs> some so that so they will cut a lot of slack um about their really poor behaviors and i think that's really inappropriate because ultimately patient outcomes are very much related to a team and everybody being able to speak up if you're mm. in a team where the boss gets cranky if you question anything then you're not going to speak up and question if you see them doing something you think is you know, have they missed some important fact or just go away thinking, I must look that up because it doesn't seem like that's the right thing to do. Mm. It could be they're doing the wrong thing and not uh, realised it or not known some piece of the puzzle. But unless you're in a team where we value people speaking up, we value questioning, the boss is challenged constantly, then our patient outcomes are not as good. I think that's a really um, interesting reflection, actually, that, um, you know, on, on one level, obviously, we should be stamping out things like bullying and harassment because it's, you know, completely inappropriate and can cause all sorts of harm to the person being targeted by that. But even if we're not thinking about that, we should just be thinking about patient outcomes. I mean, even, even um, you know, that is probably the most important thing that, that we do, really. And if you want to have better patient outcomes, um, yeah, that um, open, um, you know, judgment-free zone, almost like a flattened hierarchy is, is a good way to go about that. Yeah. And that you're all learning together. We learn yeah. so much from our juniors as well. And if people who are not open to that are going to miss a lot. So in terms of um, your own, you know, you mentioned um, obviously having um, a son in um, whilst in med school and you've got three kids now, I believe, um, do you think we are moving to a uh, kind of more acceptable uh, workplace in, in surgery um, in terms of things like flexible training and, you know, not working full-time hours um, to support people who really have that interest and particularly perhaps women who, who do bear more of the brunt of, um, you know, being pregnant and raising, raising children perhaps um, in surgery? Yeah, we're moving in that direction, um, Aidan, but there's still a long way to go. Mm. Um, 
we call it flexible training, um, but it's about the most rigid flexible training I could think of. Um, <laughs> you can only have six weeks off in a six-month term for most specialties. And so if you need more than six weeks, then that six months doesn't count. Right. So women will try and plan a pregnancy that lands um, within one six-month um, period. But, you know, you never know what's going to happen to your body going to prem labour, have your babe early. You could have a year um, wiped out. And even if you it all goes to plan, having only six weeks off with a newborn, it having so little in your, you know, so there will be so few times in your life um, that I think people really need to take the time, men and women, to really have that time with a small infant. And I'd really like to see men being encouraged to take mm -hmm. um, all the leave that they can get as well to um, even if it's, you know, a female has the first six months and the father has the second six months or the partner, the partner has the second part that it's really used. Um, mm. The um, Scandinavian countries are really pushing that approach and they measure of how many of their um, people are on leave and taking that time. And they're trying to get that number up. And it, it is really important for you. You're going mm. to, if you don't take that time, you, you miss so much of a, of a child's early growth and the bonding period. It's very easy as a surgeon not to see your kids at all, you know, mm. hardly at all. And um, it's not the sort of parent I ever wanted to be. Yeah, I probably but... was for many years. <laughs> mm. Well, it's probably all about striking that balance, I guess. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I'm interested in um, chatting a bit further about the, the many things you've done in your career, Annette. We... Um, we last um, chatted a little bit about you, you know, going through that orthopedic training program. Um, you obviously came out the other side and you had this interest in pediatric um, surgery. Um, tell us a little bit about pursuing that and then where some of those interests in, you know, in trauma and in disaster medicine and, and the military came in. Where, where those threads came in. And yeah. so I, um, my last year of training was at Monash Medical Centre and um, that was, you know, the, and still is the other paediatric hospital in Melbourne. And the Prince Henry's came and merged when I'd only been like, when I was in my first or second year out as a consultant. And so the jobs were advertised. And in fact, I didn't even get an interview to work there. And then they realized they'd appointed all the Prince Henry's people and not the, Mon the um, Monash people. So they had all these pediatric clinics and no one to work in them. So I was, you know, allowed to stay to do pediatrics. It was the very early days of cerebral palsy, our understanding of cerebral palsy and surgery and cerebral right. palsy. And I, I did some time at the children's and actually looked after the CP clinic there for um, a six-month period or so. And it was clear to me that we just, some of our surgeries were making people worse. And the opportunity came, we had some visitors, um, a guy called Gwyn Evans came out from the UK around two, 91, 92. Um, and we started up Australian Pediatric Orthopaedic Society was just founding then. And it sounded to me like he um, and a guy from the US called Jim Gage had actually worked cerebral palsy out and um, had the answers. So certainly had far more answers than we had. And I then tried to get a uh, job as a fellow. It didn't, didn't suit my partner as immediately that I'd finished. So I'd actually been a consultant three and a half years by the time I was able to take up a fellowship in, at um, the Robert Jones and Agnes Hunt Orthopaedic Hospital at Oswestry, Street, very well-known orthopaedic hospital and um, very well-known for the orthopaedics and the gate laboratory work there, particularly um, cerebral palsy. So I went there and had a year there and I, as I came back, um, the children's employed Co Graham um, as their consultant who'd come from Ireland as also a cerebral palsy expert. So we ended up working at different hospitals and um, it, just, it just never worked out that we came together. So I, I'd started up my practice again. It was principally paediatrics. I had still had a private practice at that time. But actually I was heading up, um, you know, the late 30s when 
and I'd had my three children by then thinking, is this what it's going to be like? And I was doing my public work and private work like most other people trying to fit in and still not feeling like it's what I really wanted to do. And then the opportunity came to go to Papua New Guinea and do some volunteer um, work in PNG. So I started going up for two weeks every six months and it was just the most rewarding work I've ever done. Um, pretty much ever done. It was pretty mm. rewarding what one of the war zones, but um, it's... Um, Every decision I made, everything I did made a huge impact on the people I was making that decision for or doing the surgery for. And I think that's what I was really missing. Um, one, uh, in 98, they had a big tsunami hit the north coast just between the two hospitals that I worked at. So that was my first uh, contact with a the word tsunami, but me looking after people <laughs> from a disaster. And mm. I managed to get my team from Monash. We'd been taking a, a surgical team. I'd been taking a surgical team up from Monash to go and work on that north coast and um we managed to get a seat with the military and they flew us up but we worked with our normal teams at the hospitals up there over about three weeks and it was just so challenging i had no control over equipment that was coming in or things that we needed or how to manage the people um what the best way of treating them was we didn't have internal fixation equipment which was really quite a blessing um, knowing how to treat people in traction, knowing how to do closed reductions was actually really important, but it hasn't been part of my training and it's it's not now. Anyway, I vowed that if anything, if it ever I was to do something uh, like that again, I'd join the military because it looked to me like they were completely organised. and uh, They knew what they together. were doing. Yeah, they knew what they were doing and, and incredible support. So, um, and it was only, it was 99 that um, there was um, a referendum in East Timor and the people of East Timor decided to um, have to separate from Indonesia. And as the Indonesians left, the place just got trashed. The Australian military went in under a UN banner um, as a peacekeeping force, peace monitoring, can't remember. Um, that's, that is important um, uh, because it depends whether you can shoot back. <laughs> so, um, I think we were peacekeeping. Um, and then they needed orthopedic surgeons to join defence to do that because defence hadn't had specialty surgery. Everything had been pretty much wound down. So I joined defence to provide service in East Timor. And when I joined, everyone thought it would be about humanitarian service in the South Pacific and thought that's exactly what I wanted to do. So um, I joined up and did my service up there and then pretty much we'd been at war um, with someone mostly in the Middle East ever since then. You know, the early years it was East Timor and and um, then it became Afghanistan, Iraq, Iraq, Afghanistan, back to Iraq again. So um, I had incredible opportunities to go and do things in uniform that would never have come my way if um, I hadn't, um, if I wasn't in uniform. Yeah, that's a really interesting journey and you're um, certainly living out your, um, you know, advice to take the road less travelled and, and, you know, take the deviating path um, because, you know, it's more interesting and you'll, you'll get a lot of different things out of it. Um, tell us about what your advice um, on top of that might be for people who, who might have similar thoughts at some point in their career of, you know, I'm doing this, Thing, you know maybe working in the city or working in private practice and I just don't know if it's fulfilling for me or I just don't know if it's right for me I think it's really important to reflect um, on what it is that you're doing on a regular basis and where your personal um, growth lies the um, I used journaling intermittently over um, the course of my um, life <laughs> Um, I think that really helps me work out what it is that I, I'm enjoying and I'm not enjoying or the times in my life where completely, you know, I come to realise that all the joy has been sucked out of life uh, completely, so change is required. Um, uh, so journaling was important for me. Um, so reflect. Reflect on what it is that you're doing. Don't be afraid to go and try new things. I don't, unless you've stretched yourself, you don't really know uh, what you're capable of. So if you've got the opportunity to do rural rotations um, or go somewhere that's, you know, yes, it's going to be a challenge, um, but lean into it and engage in it. And it, it shortens the, 
deliberation somewhat once you've made the decision to do it. It's also a bit surgical just to make the decision. Um, yeah. But I can I can vacillate for quite a while over some things. Um, mm. One of my, when I was going to that UK when I you know had my private practice set up and we'd been I'd been in practice three and a half years and I we just bought a house that was quite derelict but very big. I had a very big mortgage and. I spoke to one of my um, bosses at Monash and he just said, I'd seize this golden opportunity with open arms. And I was like, okay, just sort of shift your mindset about yeah. what, it, what it is you're planning to do and just fully engage with this. Is, this is what we're going to do. So these are the steps, you know, start focusing on how you're going to get there. Again, a bit more of a surgical approach perhaps, but um, yeah, that, that was really important. And I think taking opportunities as they come along, it's easy to stay comfortable and, and stay in your lane. But, but unless you go outside that or, you know, try to see what else you can do, I think it's hard to, hard to grow and develop. Mm, I think that's been a really common thread and it's great to hear it from you as well, Annette, that it's almost, um, you know, as a med student and a junior doctor and even as a senior doctor, say yes to things, take up opportunities and work out how they're going to fit into your life down the track, really. Yeah, it does. It makes you, it makes you into, um, uh, makes for a very interesting life. So when mm. I, I ended up in um, Afghanistan um, looking after people there, because I, I had this little um, veer into trauma, we didn't really go into that. So once I'd done that East Timor work, it became clear that um, I had no credibility because I was an orthopedic surgeon. What would I know about trauma? So I did two <laughs> trauma fellowship, one at the Royal Children's and then um, because I'd come from that strong paediatric background and then at the Alfred, um, then stayed on there as a full-time trauma surgeon. So then I had a bit of um, kudos as actually I would know what I was doing in trauma. Um, but that ended up in 2008, I was the clinical director of a, a, a NATO a medical facility. It was a role too. So only meant we had one orthopedic surgeon, one general surgeon, um, a small surgical team, two periop nurses, two ICU nurses, one anaesthetist for looking after whatever came in and some pretty extraordinary things came in and we had very limited capacity about what we can do. There was no CT. We just had x-ray. Um, uh, and so we had to look just about every keep people alive and then get them on to the next level. And, wow. and I, but I could lead the response in the emergency department, um, you know, directing people uh, about what needed to happen, who needed to go theater, look after multi-cas events. We had an extraordinary time in um, the, at the end of that rotation with where nine Australians got ambushed and with, well, there were nine shot and, um, so we're try we normally had one trauma team um, and we'd already done through lots of preparation about how we could flex up to have multiple trauma bays. Um, and so we did lots of mass CAS events and including this multi, well, it was still a mass CAS, it overwhelmed us. Um, but to look after those Australian soldiers that had come in um, and be able to support them and get them all off our table and out to Landstool and back to Australia was incredibly rewarding. And it was about that, you know, it's a disaster. I haven't got much. We're pretty austere, but I can do trauma. I can do it in a, a strange place. Um, I can rely on that, you know, I can only do what I can do, that mental space of not like, oh, I wish I had ICU and everybody else backing me up, um, being comfortable in that space. So everything I'd been doing along the way with my well, the paediatrics wasn't that incident. We had other kids, but it just took me to that point where I had the right sort of background for that moment. Yeah, and I imagine you would have, um, yeah, really grown a lot being thrown in the deep end like that as well. And as you say, learnt a lot about yourself. Um, what were some of, in, in all of your years working in kind of disaster medicine and, um, and trauma surgery as well, particularly overseas, what were the most challenging aspects of it? The most challenging aspects. <laughs> the, um, or do you have any kind of moments that really kind of stick out to you as a really, really hard time in, in your life and your work? I'm, I'm sort of working backwards, uh, filtering through, but I think one of one of the hardest ones was in the Philippines after a typhoon. Um, we went there with Osmat. Um, uh, the Taklaban had been wiped out in um, November 2013. And we had like canvas tents that leaked and and dripped water it was hot and it was wet and your bedding was wet and there were puddles all under our 
um, bed. So anything that dropped over the edge, like your pillow off your stretcher at nighttime was wet that you weren't trying to sleep on. It's incredibly difficult uh, living conditions. Um, <laughs> made me appreciate the living conditions we'd had on other disasters. Um, and then during the day, trying to contribute to just an overwhelming number of people um, who with really dirty, stuffy, infected wounds that were, you know, starting when we got there about a week down the track, a lot of diabetic people with um, terrible wounds. And the best you could do was control the sepsis and, you know, remove mm. dead tissue. There was no, you know, we weren't in a reconstructive phase. So the living conditions really make a, a difference about um, how you could, what work you could do during the day. Other a lot of other times it'd been about equipment. What what can you do with what you've got? Um, and you never and you should never have um, all the internal fixation equipment that we would normally have in our public hospitals. So it's not about just taking what your practice is in a hospital in Australia and taking that into a disaster and doing it there. You actually have to practice safe surgery that's not going to put anybody at risk. So yeah. you have to know how to do closed reductions and traction and walking traction and things that we just never use here. Um, anymore so that that's remained a really big area of interest for me in a military sense as well and the same with the disaster you're only there for a very short time you're only doing here you have your patient you know might look after them for years for different conditions and over there you've got you know might have a few days so the military might even buy like they came in today and might be on a plane in four hours time you know have their surgery 90 minutes on table four hours later on a plane leaving the country so you really had to focus on what can you do now that's safe, that doesn't jeopardise anything else because they're not you're not going to be there to watch them afterwards. Mm. They won't be with you or, or you will have left. So that really important part about handover and um, getting information through, whether that's writing on a patient or writing on their bandages or drawings on their plasters, things that help go with the patient for handover and so someone else knows what it is that you've done. And we've really only um, briefly touched on your work with the military. Um, as I briefly mentioned, um, you have been, and correct me if I'm wrong, but a, a group captain um, in the Royal Australian Air Force and the clinical director for surgery and perioperative services there. Um, I understand uh, there's a, a bit of a story behind your introduction to the Air Force as well um, you know, on a on an aviation medicine course. Can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, I'm not sure what you mean, Aidan. You have to I, give me I, another hint. <laughs> I, I briefly read about a, a plane hurtling, you know, up at oh. a certain number of Gs that uh, oh, your, your yeah, life no, flashed before your eyes. Yeah, yeah, when I thought we might die. Um, yeah, that one. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that was, yes, that was an aviation medical officer's course. Um, often hard for a specialist to get onto such a course. They're, you know, it's five weeks long. It's run over in... Uh, South Australia, um, but incredibly important because a lot of the um, injuries that our air crew suffer from are, in fact, orthopaedic injuries. So it's important that um, specialists understand um, what the sort of environment the aviation people go through. But equally, there's um, a lot of ENT issues and visual um, phenomena. I will say it took me back to my med school days. Um, mm -hmm. I, I managed to get on the course because I was, in fact, um, being paid by um, DVA at the time. I had broken my own humerus in Afghanistan in oh. the February that year and um, I've been medevaced back to Australia myself and um, couldn't. I had um, left the Alfred late uh, 2009. and You just wanted to see what it was like on the other side, didn't you? Not at all. <laughs> I was <laughs> devastating, actually. Um and, but I couldn't get a job because, you know, I had a broken arm and then I had yeah. a broken shoulder. Um, but Defence oh, no. took me on this um, this course and it was actually fabulous. It was a lot of physiology about visual disturbance and when you're flying at night, you know, and how a spot in the windscreen and things can fly into you because you're just not seeing them out there. Mm. I was like, you're blind spot. And I was like, oh, things I hadn't thought about for a long time. Um, mm. So a lot of um, physiology revisited. And being dropped in Spencer Gulf and waiting for a, um, a helicopter to come and pick us up and winch, winching up. And um, that, that was quite fun too. 
Um, I'd had an offer of being practice winching when I was on a ship in the Solomon Islands around 2003. And I was thinking, oh, I'm not sure I really want to have a go at that. And they said, you know, it's fine. You just have this strap around under your arms. And um, I said, so long as you don't lift your arms up, you'll be fine. I was like, I'm oh, not God. sure I can rely on myself not to lift my <laughs> arms up when there's a strap holding my body weight up under a helicopter. And this one, they said, you know, and if you're in trouble, you know, put your hand on your head. And I said, so you can lift an arm up. And they said, oh, yeah, but only one arm at a time. <laughs> And I was like, Gee. well, the other one's so stiff with a frozen shoulder, it's not going to go up in the air. I'm yeah, probably yeah, safe yeah. to do this. So I did actually get winched out of the water um, up into the Black Hawk helicopter. So that, that was really interesting. But the end of the course, we went on a flight um, with the in a trainer. It was like the PC-9s that are down at um, Sale. And the pilot and me walking out, strapped into a G-suit, you know, all laced up in a G-suit and holding my oxygen mask and helmet and comms and everything. I was like... I one of my favorite movies was Top Gun. And I thought I had, I, I, had that moment. I was having my Top Gun moment walking yeah. out across that um, airfield to get in the little plane. And then I didn't get airsick fortuitously. Kept, they kept trying, they tell you, you know, you turn your head and you look down here and you're looking for some leave. It's really important that you see it and not reach down there because some other dangerous thing like the eject buttons down there. So, <laughs> so they're, they're, you're looking down here while they're doing some turn to the right and it's meant to make you sick. Anyway, I didn't get sick. So then he took me, um, we did this enormous uh, ascent straight up into the air and I'm sure the engines were cut and we cartwheeled over onto one wing and we're just facing down at the earth a long way down. And I really had that. It's, it's been a good life. This, you know, this, this may be the last thing I see or enjoy wow. the journey down because um, it, it was a little fast, you know, life flashed before your eyes um, moment for me, but really, really exceptional. And the engines did come on and we did pull out of that um plummeting to earth dive um but it was um it, it was a little moment for me thinking yeah i've done what i i've done i've had a good life done what i needed to do and um i'm happy with what i've um put into it but mm. you anyway, know that was 2010 so i've had more opportunity put in things since i think it says a lot about the many interesting things that you've done in your life that you couldn't remember the story about when you thought you were about to die. You, you know, there, were, there were, sound like there were maybe a few to pick from. Well, you said your introduction to the Air Force. So I, I joined in 2000. So I'd already been in okay, you know, yeah, 10 years yeah. at the time, but um, I hadn't yeah. been on any flight. They don't let surgeons go near planes normally except to travel. Right. They take us somewhere. <laughs> yeah. And um, you're, you mentioned your time over um, in, in war zones, um, you know, in the Pacific and particularly in the Middle East. And, you know, we've obviously seen the turmoil recently um, with, you know, various Western troops withdrawing from Afghanistan. What do you think that taught you about that, that experience over there um, taught you just about life and humanity? It taught me that girls need to be educated. It's yep. um, uh, pretty much a taken here, but I had a patient over there who was, or said that she was 13, but she might've been a little bit younger. Um, she'd had appendicitis and had the most purulent abdomen I ever had the misfortune of being inside with a general surgeon. But in her recovery phase, uh, when she was getting a little bit better, I took her some textures and um, paper. Uh, thought she might like to do some drawing while she's sitting around in a hospital getting better. And she mm -hmm. did not know that um, a pen textile would make a mark on paper she she just didn't know that she'd clearly not come across um paper and markers before uh, that i found that very confronting wow and so and it's just you know it's i don't think there's a military solution there it it's just so difficult um i think the solution comes through a community um where the girls get educated and people behave uh in a respectful way to each other um mm. that it's not just the men who make the rules in that society you know at the moment it is the men that makes the rules the, the women are i think attending primary school but they've not have been allowed to go back to high school yet so that's very diminishing for what um potential the country can reach um again if they're just drawing on their male population mm. Um, and yeah, another really good lesson. And I suppose we um, have chatted about gender issues in Australia. And I suppose, um, it, obviously, that's something that we really want to keep striving for. But it does make you grateful 
um, to live in Australia, I think, hearing shocking stories like that. Yeah. I, we had a little boy there as well who um, who was another a little moment for me. He was eight and he came in with a gunshot wound in the back of his leg and he ended up dying because um, the bullet had actually gone in the back of his thigh up across his abdomen, out through a kidney. Um, and we, you know, he, he, he was just too badly injured and we did CPR for an hour after his laparotomy, but um, we couldn't get him back. We had a pink warm child, um, but with asystole and we couldn't get him out of it. And, um, you know, he'd been, it was, he'd been shot at like five in the morning, whether he was either asleep or trying to crawl away from someone with a gun. And you're still like, thank Thank God that's not where my children are. You know, we've been so fortunate to have been born in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Annette, uh, heading towards the latter part of this interview, we've heard a lot of um, the amazing things you've done in your life, and I'm interested in just getting a few last thoughts um, from you and, and maybe a couple of pieces of advice. The first is just addressing mistakes and um you know, it's um, something that's really inevitable for all of us juniors looking forward um, that, you know, we're going to make wrong turns in our career. We're going to make small and large mistakes. Do you have advice for um, facing those mistakes and kind of learning and growing from them? Oh, yeah. I think you have to turn and look them in the eye. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, you, you can't hide from them and you can't gloss over them. And I really value... Um, medicine where we can be be so open and talk about you know decisions we made that were could have could have been better decisions or what could we have done differently always looking forward to the next event you know not not mm -hmm. uh to blame shame or criticize people about what did happen because that's mm -hmm. just the facts of what happened um but to be able to think about that and redesign how we might do the future differently and it, same, it's like it's being generous to yourself, even if, you know, you're beating yourself up about, say, not studying when you've got an exam coming up, which I have very soon. Um, it's about being kind to yourself and going, well, you know, okay, that was yesterday. What what can I do differently today to get perhaps a better outcome? And maybe that won't work either, you know, and you're still okay, well, perhaps it is that I need to exercise every day. Perhaps it is that I um, need to not watch TV in the evening. But, but whatever it is, whatever you consider might be contributing to um, decision-making that was poor um, or actions that were poor, how you can go about um, attending to that. And perhaps a related um, issue or, or question that I had was, you know, maybe in those times of, of trouble and um, uncertainty in, in your career, you can draw on the support of others around you and your support group. Um, you mentioned Kevin King for you, who was one of your mentors. Do you have uh, advice for, um, you know, seeking out those mentors for, for the junior med students and junior yeah. doctors um, yeah. and kind of building that support? Yeah, I think... Um... A mentor doesn't have to be like a lifelong relationship. It could be a one-off meeting. But if as juniors you see someone doing something or something about their behaviour you'd like to learn, any any aspect, there's so many aspects, like you need a board of directors really, um, mm -hmm. you, you want to learn from them. If you say, you know, I noticed you um, do this, you know, could we have a cup of coffee and talk about it? Um, I'd like to learn more about that. Then there's not many consultants who, or, you know, or anybody who's going to say, you know, no, I'm not sharing, you know, how I do that well. Um, but it's just, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen? They say no. Um, what have you got to lose, really? It's, um, uh, it's really important. So it can be from a one-off meeting to something that does last for years. Um, mm. But just look, just be on the lookout for things, um, ways that, people are behaving or doing that you want to understand more about um you wanting to emulate it um get more knowledge about it have a meeting with them mm. and i guess as you say you know take those opportunities as they come up as as we've spoken with other aspects of your yeah. career as well um and you know if there's as you say an interest uh, that you have that someone else is doing well or, or is ahead of you in you know follow yeah. them up and, and aim for that yeah. Um, you've certainly um, had a, a very 
kind of diverse uh, and interesting career. We've spoken a bit, Annette, about, you know, not taking the safe path and, um, you know, not being afraid to do things a little bit outside the textbook. Do you have advice for med students in terms of kind of following or even finding that, that passion and um, the area that they will ultimately go into, which, you know, maybe for, for some of the juniors is quite an anxiety provoking decision at, at this young stage. I think, I think you'll probably find it easier to say what you don't like. Um, right. And you just have to be careful that isn't just because you've run across somebody in that field that you didn't like. <laughs> yeah. it might be a boss that you didn't like in a particular rotation but think about the work and the patience um, and it might be easier to list what you don't like to start with okay these are the fields I won't go in but in time it will come to you what are the parts that you really do like and if you're doing something like a practicing gratitude as a as a regular practice you'll come across and start to realize what it is that does fire you up and think I could be doing this all the time and just get lost in the flow um, you know yeah. and where time can pass and you don't even realize um, it's going. In surgery, I think it's often that as junior doctors, I would say that it's, I find very often now the junior doctors are spending time on wards or, or certainly not in operating theaters. You need to be in an operating theater if you want to be a surgeon. Um, it is just such an exceptional experience. And the people who go and then you do your work around that and deal with things by phone or beforehand and afterhand and between cases, that, that's where you'll find your passion. If you find that's just you're totally immersed in that environment, um, you're definitely on a on a pathway to being a surgeon. There's no physician I think ever enjoyed being in an operating theatre. <laughs> ever. <laughs> um, no, I like that. I, I, finding your yeah, finding your passion, finding that flow that um, you know, as you say, is something you um, realize you can do all day, every day. Um, yeah, it certainly sounds yeah. like. The, the goal to achieve um, for all of the juniors. So uh, Annette, um, we've had a great chat. It's, it's been really interesting to hear from your journey. And um, I think your, um, your career can really be summarized by improving access to surgery for those who most need it. Uh, so, you know, we've spoken about um, access for those with disabilities, for, for children, for trauma victims, people in remote areas, people caught in conflict and, and those in natural disasters. Um, so I think there's a lot of lessons to be taken out of your career. And thanks so much for your time and, and chatting to us here at the Time Out today. It's been um, a pleasure, Aidan. And I just do a little plug for, um, there's a group called Incision for med students interested in global surgery. So mm -hmm. they're, they're on Twitter and I'm sure got a website, but it's if you just did incision, you'd find it. There's, um, I'm not sure if there's an Australian chapter yet, but med students can also be members of um, the College of Surgeons Global Health um, Group. Um, and so you can be connected into, it's largely online stuff at the moment, but that doesn't mean you, can, you, can, you can't participate in, in what we're doing online uh, to support people in the region. So encourage you all in whatever fields you wanna pursue. Oh, that's, um, yeah, really good to know. And uh, yeah, good thing to pursue for those wanting to get a foot in the door. Mm -hmm. Thanks very much again, right. Annette. It's been great Thanks. to chat. Thanks, Aidan. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Time Out, brought to you by Aidan, Ganisht, Chloe and Noreen. We'd love to hear from you if you're enjoying our interviews or have any ideas for the show on Facebook and Twitter at TTO Podcast and on Instagram at TTO Podcast SSSM. Don't forget to subscribe to The Timeout on Spotify or Apple Podcasts as well. Finally, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Medical Indemnity Protection Society and the Department of Surgery at the University of Melbourne for their ongoing support.